If you can give the world half of what Nina Simone gave it, you will have lived an exceptional life. All you have to say is, tomorrow you'll try to be better. Like a mother lovingly calling her son a son of a bitch. My lover never believed I held a gun in my mouth. So I talked to myself like a witness. Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers Podcast. In this episode, we'll be hearing a few new poems from Terrence Hayes. Plus readings by Hanif Abdurraqib and Lauren Groff. So, stick around. Groff has a new book out. It's a story collection. It's titled Florida. It's published by Riverhead Books. And Beth Ann Patrick uh, profiles her for the new issue. And one of the themes of that profile is Lauren's sort of complicated feelings about her state of residence, Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, she moved there, I think, about 12 years ago, mm-hmm. sort of begrudgingly with yes. her husband. Uh, she has two kids there. Uh, but she's got she's got some complicated feelings about the state. Yeah. Which I feel like is a pretty common thing. A lot of people have a complicated relationship with Florida. I mean, you have a f- you have feelings about Florida. Yes, I don't yes. think it's. I think it's impossible to not have some right. take on Florida. Right. right. It seems like everybody has family in Florida. Mm-hmm. My brother lives there. He lives in uh, West Palm Beach, Lake Worth. Mm-hmm. I've got a number of aunts and uncles that live there. I have mm-hmm. a cousin that lives there with her family. Little known fact: mm-hmm. she is Tinkerbell. Tinkerbell? In, How does that work? Uh, she is, um, well, she's been doing it for many years, and she gets rigged up in a production at Disney World and flies as Tinkerbell. Wow. She's like a, nightly? Yeah, or? not nightly. It's a part-time job. <laughs> okay. But she does it pretty frequently. Robin, if you're listening, let us know how frequently. Uh, Tinkerbell. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. I bet you she's not the only person in Florida who is able to say, no, no I'm, I'm Tinkerbell. No, I think there's a number of Tinkerbells <laughs> living and working in Florida for sure. Yes, professional uh, and unprofessional. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are probably some unprofessional Tinkerbells too. The unprofessional Tinkerbells, I feel like that's something that you would find on the website Florida Man. FloridaMan.com. <laughs> if you are not familiar with this, it's 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 pretty fun to yes. to check out. Um, it's basically an aggregate of headlines um, that includes the phrase "Florida Man," right? Or just Florida people doing you know kind of insane stuff, which seemingly they do sort of on the regular, yep. right? Enough that there's a whole website dedicated to it and a book, right? Uh, we were just looking at this. The most recent one um, that's listed on here is Florida Man Punches Cars, Challenges Everyone to Fight Him at Chili's. <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty great. Yeah. Um, Florida Woman Tells Cops Cocaine in Her Bag Flew In from Open Window. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Naked Screaming Florida Man Flails Wildly Punches Cars. <laughs> that's good. There's a lot of like naked men screaming mm-hmm. and flailing. Yeah, I think they're often drug related. Yep. Yep. And it seems to happen in Vero Beach a lot. Mm, that's where the action's at. That's where the, the Florida man uh, challenged everyone to fight him at Chili's. Mm. <laughs> Vero Beach. Chili's kind of reminds me of a Florida story I have. 
Really? Yeah. What happened at sort of at a, Chili's that's in Florida? A, that's a back uh, way to get into a story. Uh, let's see. It was like one of my first first times I went to Florida. I mm-hmm. went to Florida a lot when I was a kid to visit mm-hmm. family. And um, I was traveling with my parents, and I was about 13. And um, a couple days before the trip, my mom and I went to a spa. And my mom, like a normal human being, got like a massage and a manicure. Sure. And I, as a 13-year-old pre-adolescent girl, went to the spa and was like perusing the menu <laughs> and was like, oh, waxing. Cool. Oh. I didn't quite know the context of that. So I asked the person, can I get my arms and legs waxed? And she was like, yeah, sure, I guess. Oh. And so I, as a delicate 13-year-old got my arms and legs entirely waxed. I mean, you have to understand, I was, you know, 13, very, you know, Mm -hmm, all the 13-year-old girls out there, if you've ever been a 13-year-old girl, body hair is very embarrassing. Mm. But what's worse is being so swollen and in pain afterward, for days afterward. And then we went to Florida, like, the next day. So I traveled to Florida with these, like, you know, terribly swollen and painful arms and legs and then went and sat oh, in the sun so terrible. for like a day without sunscreen on and got so burnt and so sick and that night we were going to dinner and we were we were going to a Chili's of course you were and we Chili's. I wasn't feeling good and we got to the Chili's parking lot and I like opened the car door and oh, then just no. threw up all over the parking lot I was sick for days. I'm sorry. I spent the rest of that vacation in like the hotel room, just like writhing in pain. And that was my, that was my, (laughs) that was how I felt about Florida for a long time. Just writhing in pain. Yeah. I had a, I had an episode like that in, I mean, not quite like that, but um, (laughs) I was a senior in high school and about 10 friends and I somehow convinced our parents that it would be a good idea for them to let us take a week off. And go to Florida. Oh, God. Uh, Because one of our friends had a second home there or something. She had some kind of... There was an empty house, Mm -hmm. was the point. And they must have all been under the impression that there would be parents there, Mm -hmm. but there were no parents there. So it was just... Oh, man. A group of 17-year-old kids just on the loose. That's trouble. In Fort Myers, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And the first thing we did was we went to the beach and I stupidly just you know took off my shirt laid down in the sand and fell asleep (laughs) no sunscreen and i got burnt really badly so for like a day or two i was just blistery just bad pale wisconsin kids going (laughs) to florida and laying in the sun for a day yeah super smart bad idea cool so yeah florida's florida's complicated it is um but it also provides a really great setting and some uh, some great subject matter for uh, Lauren Groff's book. Mm-hmm. And we're going to listen to her read an excerpt from uh, one of the stories in the book, Dogs Go Wolf. The storm came and erased the quiet. Well, the older sister thought, an island is never really quiet. Even without the storm, there were waves and wind and air conditioners and generators and animals moving out there in the dark. What the storm had erased was the silence from the other cabin. For hours, there had been no laughing, no bottle caps falling, none of the bickering that the girls had grown used to over the past two days. This was because there were no more adults. 
They'd been left alone on the island, the two little girls. Four and seven. Pretty little things, strangers called them. What dolls? Their faces were exactly like their mother's. Hoochies and waiting, their mother joked, but she watched them anxiously from the corner of her eye. She was a good mother. The fluffy white dog had at least stopped his yowling. He had crept close to the girl's bed, but when they tried to stroke him, he snapped at their hands. The animal was torn between his hatred of children and his hatred of the wild storm outside. The big sister said, Once upon a time there was a princess, the little sister said. Rabbit, the big sister said. Rabbit princess, the little sister said. Once upon a time, there was a tiny purple rabbit, the older sister said. A man saw her and scooped her up in his net. Her family tried to stop him, but they couldn't. The man went into the city and took the rabbit to a pet store and put her into a box in the window. All day long, people stuck their hands in to touch the purple rabbit. Finally, a girl came in and bought the rabbit and took her home. It was better there, but the rabbit still missed her family. She grew and slept with the girl in her bed, but most days she stared out the window all sad. She began to forget that she was a rabbit. One day the girl put a leash on the rabbit and they went out into the park. The rabbit looked up and saw another rabbit staring at her from the edge of the woods. They looked at each other long enough for her to remember that she was not a girl, but a rabbit, and the other rabbit was her own sister. The girl was kind to her and gave her food, but the rabbit looked at her sister and she knew that this was her only chance. She slipped out of the collar and ran as fast as she could over the field, and she and her sister hopped into the forest. The rabbit family was so happy to see her. They had a party, dancing and singing and eating cabbage and carrots. The end. The little sister was asleep. The two fishing cabins rocked on their stilts, the dock ground against the shore, the wind spoke through the cracks in the window frames, the palms lashed, the waves shattered and roared. The older girl held her little sister. All night, she and the island were awake, the island because it never slept, the girl because she knew that only her ferocious attention would keep them safe. Before they were left alone in the fishing camp on the island in the middle of the ocean, there had been Smokey Joe and Melanie. They were strangers to the girls. He wore a red bandana above his eyebrows. Her shirts couldn't hold in all her flesh. The older girl knew that the two adults were nervous because they didn't stop smoking and arguing in hushed voices while the girls watched Snow White over and over. It was the only tape they'd brought. In the afternoon, Smokey Joe took the girls on a walk to the pond at the center of the island. It was a weird place. Beyond the sandy bay where the dock and the cabin were, the land grew rough with a kind of spongy stone, and the trees seemed shrunken and bent by the wind. Watch out, he told them. A Hollywood movie had been made here a long time ago, and some monkeys had escaped. You come close, they'll rip your hair out and steal your food from your bowl and throw poop at your head. He was joking, maybe. It was hard to tell. They didn't see any monkeys, though they did see huge black palmetto bugs, a rat snake sunning itself on the sandy path, long-necked white birds that Smokey Joe called ibises. 
In the cabin, Melanie gave them hamburger patties without ketchup or buns and told them not to touch the dog because he was a mean little sucker. The younger sister didn't listen, and suddenly her forearm was bleeding. Melanie shrugged and said, Told you. The older girl got one of their mother's maxi pads from her dop kit and wrapped it sticker side out around her sister's arm. American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin. I thought we might as well sing the fables of sea to fill our mouths before sailing out to whale. I thought we might sing as well of the feeling of sea moving about the whale like a coat. The color of water is always the temperature of a mirror. I thought we might drown our reflections in a swaying like our songs of mother wit and mother woe, our toasts with the water, a deep dark blue and almost indigo we paled from the whale before sail. Whale road is a kinning for sea. Time machine is a kinning for the mind. Alive is a kinning for the electrified. I thought we might sing of the wire wound round the wound of feeling. That was Terrence Hayes reading a poem from his new book, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin, which is out this month from Penguin Poets. It's a collection of 70 sonnets, all bearing the same title as the book, that Hayes wrote in the first 200 days of the Trump presidency. In the new issue of the magazine, we have an excellent cover profile of Hayes written by Hanif Abdurraqib, who is a poet, critic, and essayist in Columbus, Ohio, whose first collection of essays, They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us, came out last year from $2 Radio. Hanif sat down with Terrence Hayes at the Great Jones Cafe in Manhattan, and they spoke at length about Hayes' new book and a lot of the ideas the book turns over, like love, hate, hope, art, and racism. And that one time he watched the NBA Finals with Phil Jackson. Right. It's a really fantastic piece, and you can check it out in the new print issue. But in the meantime, we're going to hear Hanif Abdurraqib read the opening section of that profile, My Past and Future Assassin. One can make a home wherever the body finds itself at rest. I imagine this to be true always, but especially now while taking in the large plastic novelty fish hanging high on the wall above the head of Terence Hayes. Even while slouching in his chair, Hayes towers above the table in front of him so that the fish, a marlin, appears as a crown under the glow of red light humming overhead, darkening half of the marlin and half of the face of the poet. We are at the Great Jones Cafe in Lower Manhattan, a place Hayes told me is his go-to spot when we spoke earlier, trying to nail down where to meet. When I arrive, I find him alone in a corner, drink already on the table. Hayes is a Southerner at heart, having spent his childhood and early adulthood in South Carolina, so it comes as no surprise to find out why he has led me here, to this place he tells me he comes to every weekend, often alone. 
I didn't know how quiet it would or wouldn't be in here, he tells me, as I sit down in reference to my request that we find a low-key location for our interview. But it's the only place in this city where I can get good grits, so it's one of the few places in this city I love. And I imagine this to be his way of welcoming me into a small corner of his home. We are talking about primary colors, Hayes and I. He is describing for me his most recent project. His poems were commissioned by composer Taishan Sori for Cycles of My Being, a song cycle that explores the realities of life as a black man in America, or, so it is described in the publicity material, performed by renowned tenor Lawrence Brownlee at Carnegie Hall Opera, Philadelphia, in Lyric Opera of Chicago. So he sent some work to be played in front of a mass audience. He tells me he agonized over which poems to send. You know how I am with this shit. Nobody knows what poems are except for poets, he says, and eventually bent to the will of the composer, who had asked Hayes if he had any poems about hope or about hate. Hayes balked at the idea. They wanted it to be hopeful, but a hopeful poem isn't my tendency, he says, and a hateful poem isn't my tendency either. He eventually wrote a poem specifically for the show, but then set it aside. This story is less about the song cycle for me and more about what is happening with the interior of Terrence Hayes. I'm not interested in primary colors, he tells me when I ask him why he has no interest in hope or hate. It's not nuanced enough. I'm interested in the spaces where colors overlap. It's like when people call someone a racist and think that's the end of it. That ain't the end. Racism is a symptom of fear or greed or some other bullshit. So even if I wrote a poem about hate, it ain't going to be about hate when I'm done with it. My personality likes a challenge, so I can write a poem that many would consider hopeful. But aren't you a hopeful person, I asked. Am I? He shoots back playfully, smiling before sighing and stirring a small tornado in his drink with the tip of his straw. I mean, the end game is always going to be death. So how hopeful can anyone really be? American sonnet for my past and future assassin. This word can be the difference between knowing and thinking. It is the name people of color call themselves on weekends and the name colorful people call their enemies and friends. It used to be the word for the absence of inheritance. Before that, it was the word for the feel of burlap. When Lincoln witnessed a slave auction in his boyhood, it was the first word to enter his mind. Before it evoked a kind of bewildering mothering, it evoked Job's afro silvering with suffering. It is the difference between cursive, tantrum, assault, and pepper spray. It is the title of that absurd three-act play where the actors say nothing 
but who can say, and who can say, who can say, for two hours straight. American Sonnet for My Past and Future Assassin. Otherwise, home is the mess laid bare, the less made air, the addressless dare, less clear, where the wax in my left ear makes half of what's said unsaid. On the air, the mute news hounds ponder the tweets of a bullhorn, a rat in the cabinet beside the liquor. Anger is a form of heartbreak. Yes, it is. If you can give the world half of what Nina Simone gave it, you will have lived an exceptional life. All you have to say is, tomorrow you'll try to be better. Like a mother lovingly calling her son a son of a bitch. My lover never believed I held a gun in my mouth. So I talked to myself like a witness. I'd mutter, whatever, whatever, forever, otherwise. A.M. Holmes has a new book out. It's called Days of Awe. It's a story collection out this month from Viking, and you can read more about that in our page one section of the new issue. A.M. Holmes, of course, is the author of more than 10 books, uh, a number of story collections, novels, and a memoir, and we asked her to read a little bit from the new collection. So here she is reading from Days of Awe. He is the war correspondent. She is the transgressive novelist. They've been flown in for the summit on genocides. She spots him at the airport baggage claim and nods in the direction of a student holding up a legal pad with his name written in heavy black marker, misspelled. Want to share my ride, he asks. Caught off guard, she shakes her head, no. She doesn't want anyone picking her up, doesn't want the obligation to entertain the young student, fan, retired teacher, part-time real estate broker, whoever it might be, for the 45 minutes it takes to get where they're going. Every time she says yes to these things, conferences, readings, guest lectures, it's because she hasn't learned to say no. And she has the misguided fantasy that time away from home will allow her to think, to get something done. She's brought work with her. The short story she can't crack, the novel she's supposed to finish, the friend's book that needs a blurb, and last Sunday's newspaper. Nice to see you, the man in the car rental place says, even though they've never met. He gives her the keys to a car with New Hampshire plates. Live free or die. She drives north to the small college town where experts in torture politics, murder, along with neuroscientists, academics, survivors, and a few special guests will convene in what's become an ongoing attempt to make sense of it all, as though such a thing were possible. It's September. Despite having been out of school for decades, the academic calendar still exerts its pull. She's filled with the desire for new beginnings. 
It is the season of bounty. The apple trees are heavy with fruit. The wild grass along the highway is high. Wind sweeps through the trees. Everything breathes deeply. It's nature's end of summer sigh. In a couple of hours, a late thunderstorm will sweep through, rinsing the air clean. The town has climbed out of a depression by branding itself America's hometown. Flags fly from the lampposts. Signs announce the autumn harvest celebration, a film festival, and a chamber music series at the Presbyterian Church. She parks behind the conference center and slips in through the employee entrance. She goes down a long hall to a door marked This Way to Lobby. On the wall is a full-length glass mirror with a handwritten message on the glass. Check your smile and ask yourself, am I ready to serve? The war correspondent comes through the hotel's front door at the same time as she slides in through the unmarked door by registration. Funny seeing you here, he says. Is it? He stands at the reception desk. The thick curls that he long ago kept short are receding. In compensation, they're longer and more unruly. He makes her uncomfortable, uncharacteristically shy. She wonders how he looks so good. She glances down. Her linen blouse is heavily wrinkled while his shirt is barely creased. The receptionist hands him an important-looking envelope from FedEx. She's given a heavily taped brown box and a copy of the conference schedule. What'd you get? She asks as he's opening the envelope. Galleys of a magazine piece. You, he says. She shakes the box. Cracker Jacks? He laughs. She glances at the schedule. We're back to back at the opening ceremonies. What time is the first event? 12.30. She thinks of these things like marathons. Pacing is everything. You've got an hour. I was hoping to take a shower, he says. Your room's not quite ready, the receptionist tells him. Did you fly in from a war zone, she asks. Washington, he says. There was a press club dinner last night, and the day before I was in Geneva, and before that, the war. Quite a slide from there to here. Not really, he says. No matter how nice the china, it's still a rubber chicken. The receptionist clicks the keys until she finds a room that's ready. I found you a lovely one. You'll be very happy. She slides in the key card. You're both on the executive floor. Dibs on the cheese cubes, he says. She knew him long ago before either of them had become anyone. They were part of a group fresh out of college working in publishing that met regularly at a bar. He was deeply serious, a permanently furrowed brow, and he was married. That was the thing they all talked about behind his back. Who was married at 23? No one ever saw the wife. That's what they called her. Even now, she doesn't know her name. An older man approaches the war correspondence. Very big fan, the man says, resting his hand on the correspondent's shoulder. I have a story for you about a trip my wife and I went on. He pauses, clears his throat. We were in Germany and decided to visit the camps. When we got to our hotel, I asked, how do we get there? They tell us, take a train and a bus. When you arrive, there'll be someone there to lead you. We go. It's terrifying. All I can think of as the train goes clickety-clack is these are the same rails that took my family away. We get to the camp, and there's a cafe and a bookstore selling postcards, and we don't know what to think. And when we get back to the hotel, the young German girl at the front desk looks at us with a big smile and says, did you enjoy your visit to Dachau? Do we laugh or cry? The man pauses. So what do you think? The war correspondent nods. It's hard to know, isn't it? We did both, the man says. We laughed, we cried, and we're never going back. The correspondent catches her eye and smiles. There are delightful creases by his eyes that weren't there years ago. She's annoyed. Why is his smile so quick, so perfect? 
As she moves towards the elevator, a conference volunteer catches her arm. Don't forget your welcome bag. The volunteer hands her a Candace tote laden with genocide swag. it for this episode our 20th 20 episodes it's a lot of episodes it is if you like what we're doing let us know on itunes soundcloud or send us an email ampersand at pw.org yeah let us know what we're doing right <laughs> or wrong or wrong um we should we should mark the 20th episode with some kind of something celebratory yeah uh it's a milestone okay um something poetic haiku Mm. A, a, a 20th episode haiku. Okay. Should we should we just try to come up with a haiku yeah. right now? Um, it, it's, so it's 575, five, right? 575. Okay. Um, a- ampersand. Ampersand podcast. Ampersand podcast is five, so okay, that's so it that's right our first there. line. Ampersand podcast. Where's the last line? Maybe it's the last Ooh, line. Okay. The third line. Yes. Um, <laughs> you are in my ears. You are in my ears. That's five. <laughs> you are in my ears with poetry, fiction. Nope. 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 Well, that's six. Poetry, fiction, essay. <laughs> Wait, how about this? Um, I can hear you in my ears. I can hear you in... No, I hear you... You are in my ears. <laughs> um, how much longer can you last? Ampersand <laughs> podcast. podcast. <laughs> how much longer can you last? There, yeah, that's yeah. it. You're in my ears. How much longer can you last? Ampersand, Ampersand podcast. podcast. That's... It's pretty great right there. If you can top that. If you can top that, please send us uh, your ampersand haiku, um, ampersand at pw.org. We'll uh, read it next time. Absolutely. We'll be back in August. With another episode of Ampersand. The Poets and Writers Podcast. Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited and mixed by Melissa Falavino. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, Blue Ducks, Audiobinger, and Yacht. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode at pw.org forward slash ampersand. 